Ave and welcome to Emperors of Rome, a podcast series in which we look at the rulers of the ancient Roman Empire. I'm your host, Matt Smith, and with me as always is Dr. Rhiannon Evans, lecturer in ancient Mediterranean studies at La Trobe University. This is episode V, Caesar and Civil War. When we last left Caesar, he'd conquered Gaul and the Germanic tribes, returned home the triumphant leader, enjoyed his triumph, and now, with a great army standing right behind him, he's ready to take power in Rome. By about 51 BCE, it seems like all of Gaul is pretty much pacified, and he's ready to come home. Of course, he wants to come home to a triumph, which he's certainly going to be awarded. However, he has problems with coming back for a number of reasons. The main one is that he made all those enemies in the Senate, and they want to prosecute him now. And in Rome, once you give up your magistracy, once you give up the power that they call imperium, you can be prosecuted. So a consul can be prosecuted at the end of his year. A proconsul or governor can be prosecuted when he gives up his power. Caesar hasn't been prosecuted as consul because he went straight into being proconsul. But now when he gives up being proconsul, which he's been for a good long time, longer than most people get that power. He's been in Gaul from 58 to 51, right? Five years would normally be a long time. Uh, once he gives that up, people like Cato are ready to pounce. So he's in a bit of a dilemma. Does he come back to Rome or does he kind of hold on to his army and hold on to his imperium? And this is something that has to be negotiated very carefully. And there are signs that Pompey and other senators were trying to negotiate with Caesar a way that he could give up his army or maybe retain one legion. There's a whole kind of series of negotiations going on through 50 BCE, an attempt to, to prevent any conflict, basically. It's important to note that Caesar can't come into Italy at the head of his army. If he does that, that that's a declaration of civil war. And how has his, uh, his alliances fared while he's been away in Gaul at this point? Well, things are starting to fall apart a bit. In a way, the, the first triumvirate, that gang of three, was a way not of bringing together three people who were natural allies, but a way of bringing together people who had some things in common. They wanted the land distribution, but also a way of reinforcing their individual power. They had enemies, so they could stand against these enemies together. But they're not people who would naturally stand together. And Crassus, in fact, has died in 53 BCE in terrible ignominy at the Battle of Carrhae in Parthia, where the Romans lost their standards, which is the worst thing you can do. That being the banners that hold the crest. Exactly, yeah. with, with the eagle on top. Yes. So this is a, a source of terrible shame, but it also means one of the, the gang of three is gone. Pompey, remember, was married to Caesar's daughter, Julia, but she had died in childbirth in 54. And there are signs that now there's tension between Caesar and Pompey. And this is not surprising because the Republican system was that you went for individual power. All right. It's often called a zero-sum game. You win, everybody else loses. Mm. And it's sort of a, a tension between power should be spread out. So you have two consuls, you have other magistrates, you're only consul for a year. And you have to try and achieve the most you can as an individual. So this tension is coming to a head now. Will it be Caesar or Pompey? Who, who allows the other to have more authority? So Caesar knows that if he gives up his title of proconsul, 
then he's going to be prosecuted. If he comes back to Rome, then not only will he lose his army, but he has no real allies to come back to either. There are fewer and fewer. He has people who've been acting in his interests while he was in Gaul. But um, still, they're, they're far outnumbered and, and not as influential as the enemy. The enemy is actually not huge in number in the Senate, yeah. but they, they are very influential. Right. And there is this, this argument that he should have come back and faced them down. He now, having you know, had this amazing success in Gaul, and by the way, that means he's got a lot of money now. From having been in extreme debt, he now has so much money that he's just doling it out to his soldiers like there's no tomorrow. There was a danger. You know, people often survived prosecution, but he might not have done. He might have been sent into exile and which would have been the end of his career, possibly. So he's got a, a, um, a massively loyal army. That, that's the other thing to mention. Yeah. These, this army has, by and large, been with him for those eight years. And this is the other part of the problem of the late Republic. The same was happening with Pompey, that now armies are becoming loyal to individuals rather than loyal to Rome. So they're Caesar's army, in effect. Pompey has his army. So even if he were to give them up, he's still got all of these veterans who would be loyal to him. And this is a very dangerous situation. This is, this is clearly perceived at Rome, and that's why there are these furious negotiations to try to, to settle the situation without war. Because a lot of older Romans remembered the time of Sulla and Marius, which had resulted in huge, huge bloodshed, terrible, terrible suffering for, for years and years and years. There was a lot of memory of that and attempts to prevent it, but it didn't work. So the saying crossing the Rubicon is around these days, and, and basically it means going past the point of no return. This is the origin of this phrase, isn't it? Caesar, if he took his armies over the river Rubicon, then that would really signal his intentions on returning to Rome with his army and, and seizing power. Yes, and, and this is what happens eventually. It, it sounds like a very decisive move, and, and it is when it happens. But as I say, it sort of happened very slowly with a lot of negotiation, which didn't work. And eventually, Caesar does bring his army into Italy. We don't actually know where the Rubicon is. It's a river, and there have been, obviously, people have tried to find it. Unfortunately, a lot of river courses have changed since antiquity. We know it's somewhere between Rimini and Ravenna, on the east coast of Italy, but well, we don't know exactly where, but we do know when he crossed it, this was a statement uh, that he's declaring war against the Senate. That's certainly how the Senate read it. So if you can't bring an army into Italy and Caesar's coming into Italy with his army, what does the Senate do? What's the reaction? They've suddenly got Caesar's army at the walls. Well, remember that the Senate is, is pretty much divided. So there are the traditionalists who are absolutely opposed to Caesar and they kind of choose Pompey as, the, as their sort of leader now. That's He's, ironic. <laughs> well, it's ironic that he was Caesar's ally. Yeah. But all along, I've said this was a pretty uncomfortable alliance. Yeah. And, and it's fallen apart in the late 50s. And they sort of negotiate with Pompey. I guess the theory is mostly that Pompey was unhappy that Caesar wouldn't submit to Pompey's authority. He wanted to be the man in charge. So it's not so much that he's fighting for the Republican cause as he wants to be number one in Rome. But for whatever reason, Pompey leaves Italy to congregate his army. He doesn't have an army in Italy. 
And Caesar continues marching down to Rome. And then he sort of takes control in Rome and is declared dictator in 48. And so civil war is on really from 49 to 45. As dictator, Caesar can really do anything he wants. It's a position that you are elected to when there is a crisis. And there's no doubt that there is a crisis. It's something that you're only meant to have, according to Republican law, for six months at a time. But it's something that Caesar never really gives up after this. At this point, Pompey is Caesar's big challenger. It's the person that he really needs to worry about. So Pompey's objective at this point is to, is to rally his forces against the dictatorship of Caesar. So where does he go to do this? His power is pretty much always in the east. So he rallies his army there, he goes to Egypt, and he's murdered. He's murdered by the Ptolemies who want to please Caesar. They've decided Caesar is the man to back in this game. And they think that, that presenting Ptolemy to Caesar, who also comes to Alexandria, to Egypt at this time, will look good for them. But Caesar is actually not pleased about this. He regards this as, you know, they've slaughtered a highborn Roman. This is the wrong thing to do. And so he occupies Egypt and starts messing around in their internal politics and basically puts Cleopatra in charge. This is how he comes into contact with Cleopatra. Was he annoyed that he didn't get a big showdown to really cement his power, do you Against think? Against Pompey? Yeah. It may have been that, yeah, that, that he wants to be the conqueror in the civil war. Also, it's kind of pointless because it doesn't end the civil war. It continues with people like Cato espousing the cause. So it's, it doesn't actually help anything. It doesn't look good that a foreign power has killed an ex-Roman consul, a great Roman military figure. For whatever reason, Caesar was not happy with this. So Caesar, who's really just become dictator, but he meets this person, Cleopatra, who's, who has quite an influence of his life, is... No? That's just according to fiction then, really. Well, it's hard to know exactly what their relationship was based on. In terms of relationships, and as we've seen in Rome, marriages that are uh, put forward for political gain, it sort of fits that model. Cleopatra needs a powerful ally, and she, she probably knows that Caesar is prone to sleep with lots of women, and so she's perhaps prepared to make that bargain. Whether it was a, tr a real love affair is very, very hard to judge, especially because it, it's quite hard to know whether the Romans viewed romance in the way that we do. Well, they almost certainly didn't. So it's foremost a political alliance, but it's something that I guess is sealed by the sexual alliance. And there are stories that Caesar, a bit like Antony later on, um, sort of spent months riding up and down the Nile on her luxurious barge and, you know, was giving way to this luxury I know one of his modern biographers reads this as Caesar needed a rest. He'd been at war for years. He'd been in Gaul. He comes back to civil war. Why shouldn't he take a little bit of time out? Fair enough, yeah. <laughs> um, but he does stay in Alexandria for a few months, and he clearly does become involved with Cleopatra. When she gives birth to a son, she claims that Caesar is the father. This really kind of takes his focus away from Rome when he doesn't need it to be, does it? Well, I mean, he's making an alliance in Egypt. I guess you could read it like that, which is an important power base. And, um, you know, he does go back to the war in 48 and it rages on for another three years, kind of around the Mediterranean. So Spain and Africa are also important bases for this war. But Caesar is ultimately victorious. 
So at this point, he's made dictator for life. He is. In 46, he is elected dictator for 10 years. And the following year, where it's when it's clear that the civil war uh, has been won by Caesar, that is converted into dictator for life. This is highly irregular. Uh, there have been highly irregular things happening throughout the late Republic, as we call it. For example, when I've been talking about minimum ages for magistracies, Pompey pretty much disobeyed all of those. You're also meant to have 10-year gaps between consulships, which Caesar up until this point, up until 48, there had been a 10-year gap. But after that, he's consul an awful lot and he only lives till 44. So the rules are all falling apart. But perpetual dictatorship is different. Perpetual dictatorship is basically saying one-man rule. Not in a time of crisis, not for a, a short period, but forever. And that looks like monarchy to the Romans. And they're right, it pretty much is monarchy. That's Dr. Rhiannon Evans, lecturer in ancient Mediterranean studies at La Trobe University. You've been listening to Emperors of Rome. You can find this podcast on both iTunes and SoundCloud. And if you like it, please subscribe, tell your friends about it, or leave us a review. You can tweet both of us. Rhiannon is at Dr. Rhiannon Evans, and I'm at Nightlight Guy. Listen out for the next episode of Emperors of Rome, which takes place on a day that has gone down in history, the Ides of March. Until then, I'm Matt Smith. You've been fantastic, and thanks for listening. <laughs>